0: Kids are leaving. If you would take your Bibles and turn to uh, the book of First Samuel, if you have them with you. Um, this is now the fourth message on this book um, that we've looked at. First was an overview, and then chapter 1, chapter 2, and now we're in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And um, I love how the book starts. It starts with the simple plea of a very um, insignificant woman who trusts the Lord. And... Um, through her simple act of faith, brings a sweeping change over the people of Israel, which is um, what we're studying in First Samuel. It's a book that leads us to Christ, but also shows us what real faith looks like in a, in a torn and frayed world. And um, today we have yet another message of faith regarding the Word of God, and uh, faith in the Word, and faith coming to the Word. And and uh, that being said, I I, um, I recognize whenever a preacher talks about the Word, it's like everybody wants to go to sleep because everybody thinks there's they know everything there is to know about, coming to the word. Um, and so I would just ask you to, to put on some fresh ears and maybe you're going to hear something this morning that, that maybe you haven't considered before um, or maybe you've heard but you've never taken to heart. And so um, we're going to begin in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. And before I pray, I wanted to um, let you know some good news and some bad news. Um, many of you are already aware of this. And let me start with the bad and then give you the good. Um, the bad news is that um, Uh, a long-standing member of our church, one of the founding members of our church, a woman by the name of Sheila Perlman. Um, Her and her husband, Max, were here with John Hanson when they started the church. And um, yesterday she uh, departed this life, and um, she is an amazing person, was an amazing person. She's one of probably uh, three or four or five I could think of who I look at and say, wow, that, that was a faithful person. Um, What I will remember about her is she is a woman who loved kids. Um, As soon as I got here, she came up to my little boy, Daniel, who was six months old, and she started playing with him. Um, And she served in Iwana Ministries for decades uh, because she had a love for the Word of God. Um, On the last time that I saw her, she grabbed my hand and she started to quote Psalm 103 to me. And she is a woman who continued to memorize scripture up until the last day and and rehearse it in her mind because the word of God was her life. So I'll remember her as a woman of love, a woman of the truth, and a woman of faithfulness. Um, Up until the time that she couldn't drive, she used to fold all of your bulletins, your little things you hold in your hand by hand. And um, so we are going to miss her. Um, That is the bad news. But the good news is she finished the race. And I just think, you know, I'm jealous (laughs) kind of. Um, she has fought the good fight, finished the race, left, left a legacy, for those of us who knew her, of, of a woman who, who did it, and she's done, and she's in the presence of Christ, and uh, we will see her again, either uh, in death or at the resurrection, and um, that's going to be an amazing day, a day to live for, and all I can say is, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So that's bad news, but even better good news, and um, so keep the family in your prayers, And we will miss her British accent and her face. And uh, will you um, bow your heads? And I just want to give thanks and then pray for God's help. Lord, we just bow before you as the Almighty, as the one who is gracious. We thank you for the gift of people that you've placed in our lives. Many of us can go back and look at an individual who has spoken into our lives, who touched us with grace and compassion, and and through them you changed our lives. And, um, Lord, we, we mourn. The loss of our sister, but we know that she's in good hands, and we're also grateful for the tremendous um, example that she was of grace. Um, up until the very end, um, never gave up hope, but always continued to pray for us and um, for me. And and um, Lord, we 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 needed it, and we're just grateful. And we know that her time was right, and we just uh, thank you for her blessing and your blessing through her. Um, Lord, we ask that um, those of us who remain behind, who still have a lot of road left to to run, some of us longer than others, we just ask that you'd be gracious in our time. Um, We can't relive this life. We can't relive a single day. But we want to take each day and we want to trust you in it. We want to love you more in it. We want to learn everything there is to know about you from creation, from your word, from each other. We want to savor you and love you. We want to honor you and glorify you. We want people to see that you're real and that you're the most lovely and beautiful, glorious, powerful, majestic, and awesome um, being ever to be imagined and beyond imagination. So I just ask in a um, in a plea on behalf of all of us that you would meet with us this morning. And if we're coming to a concept that we're familiar with, I just pray you'd protect us from From the presumption of thinking we know everything about a subject and give us fresh ears and humble hearts. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, indulge me um, for moving from a rather sober note to one of maybe a little bit more of a uh, facetious note. Uh, Most of us in here know how to talk pretty good um, and have no problem speaking. You may not want to speak up front or in public. I know a lot of people are scared to f- speak publicly, but that doesn't mean you don't like to talk. You have no problem talking to somebody over over coffee at Starbucks or um, picking up the phone and having a conversation. That is, we're real comfortable using words and speaking our, our mind and how we feel and expressing ourselves. But really the harder part, I think, in this whole thing called communication between those who speak and those who listen is the listening part. Uh, to really humble oneself and put one's thoughts on hold and and um, worries and, and really listen to another person and try and really understand who they are and what they're saying. Um, it takes a lot, I believe, of humility to actually be a good listener. And it's harder to be a good listener than to be a good talker. And I know from my own experience, um, I have endeavored by the grace of God to struggle and try to get better as a, as a listener, to, to learn the art of humility of listening to somebody else. And in my progress, I have noticed certain types of, we might call them listening disorders, you know, that pretty much plague every, every human that I know of. And um, there are many, but this is kind of how I think of them. One of the disorders that many of us struggle with is the, the disorder of a distracted listening. Um, a distracted listening, and what comes to my mind, and this is uh, not meant to dishonor him, but it's just it's just the way he worked when he was watching television. My father. Uh, My father would sit in his green recliner chair that we had for, oh, my mother wish we would have taken it to the dump long before we did, but it's a green chair that probably lived for three decades in our house, and he would turn on his his television, and he loved to watch sports, Um, basketball, football, not so much baseball, a little bit too slow. He's the opposite of me. I like watching Super Bowl, but I don't like watching sports the rest of the time. Maybe it's a reaction. I don't know. Anyway, he loved to sit in front of the TV in his recliner, and he'd get into a ball game, and us kids would know. Through experience, that if we wanted to get dad to say yes, all we'd had to do was we had to walk up and ask him a question while he was watching his football game. Now, you don't go during a commercial because he'll listen to you, and you definitely don't get between him and his football game. That was bad. Everything goes bad if you get between, he'd always say, You bake a better door than a window, get out of the way. So you come up alongside of his green chair and with an idea, agenda, say, so, Dad, uh, can I go over and spend the night at Chris's house? And he wouldn't even take his eyes off the television set. He just, his lips would move towards you, you know, kind of like, yeah, sure, that sounds good. We'll, we'll see you later. Not even thinking about the fact you said yes. I'm convinced I could have said, hey, Dad, could I have your credit card and go, you know, spend $10,000 on something stupid? And he probably, yeah, that sounds good. Go ahead and take it off. Could have taken advantage of that moment. But basically, that's kind of a distracted listening. Um, another disorder of listening that's similar to that but a little bit different is what we might call the partial listener disorder. Partial listener here's, a, here's an example. This is one the husbands struggle with most, I think. is <laughs> you come home at the end of the day and, and you walk in, and your wife begins to tell you about her day. And at first, you're perched like a, just, a, just the lover, you know, the, the husband, just looking at her lips and just, I'm so here for you, I'm listening to your day, and she tells you about, you know, what they had for breakfast, and the kids got off to school, and who's doing what, and the grades, and by the way, this much laundry, and I had to do this for work, and that's for work. And somewhere in that attention span, it's like a squirrel goes across your mind, you know? <laughs> and immediately, your thoughts go, whoo over here. Meanwhile, she's talking. Your eyes are looking at her, and you're nodding like this, but you start thinking about something stupid, like I got to change the oil in the car, or you know, there's a leak in my, in my sprinkler I got to fix, and then all of a sudden, you realize, oh, I'm looking at her, I'm nodding my head, and she's speaking, but I'm not listening, and so you kind of bend back. I'm not being a good husband, so I bend back into the conversation to catch the last three sentences of what she's saying, and wives are smart, Usually about that that time, they ask the question, "Are, are you listening to me? Now, how you respond to that question as a husband will make the difference between a good night's sleep and a bad night's sleep. You have a couple options as a husband. You can own up to your mistake, and you can say, I drifted out, I was partially listening at the beginning, caught the end, sorry. And take your lumps, which is the honest way of doing things. The other way is to roll the dice. So you call it a roll of dice because in one sense you could argue, well, I was listening at the beginning and I listened at the end. And she could say, of course I was listening to you. Didn't you see me nodding my head? Squirrel. (laughs) And uh, if you're lucky and you can grasp back to those few sentences, you can kind of think, oh, yeah, that's what she was talking about. And say, yeah, we were talking about the kids. She's like, oh, you were listening liar. <laughs> Most of the time, the roll of that dice does not work. And she calls your bluff, and not only did you not listen, but now you've compounded your problem because you've lied about it. Um, that never happens in my marriage, by the way. <laughs> and then there's the third one. Now, this is one that kids like, kids like to use, listening disorder. It's called reinterpret what you say to mean what I want it to mean, disorder. So, kids come home at, after school, two, three o'clock, and you're a good parent, you really want to help them, you want to see them do well in school so they can go off and get a great education at an expensive school, and um, they come home and you ask them first thing, you're like, do you have homework? They say, yes, have homework. All right, here's what you're going to do. No electronics, no electronics until your homework's done. Got it? No electronics until homework's done. All like, yeah, yeah, sure. No electronics until homework's done. Yeah, we're we're not stupid. We heard it the first time. Fifteen minutes later, after everybody's doing their homework, you come in and you find one of them texting their friend. You're like, what are you doing? I said, no electronics. They say, well, I I thought you meant the Xbox and the computer. You didn't say anything about phones. Like, which part of no electronics don't you understand? No means no. Not maybe, not sometimes, or something means no. And electronics. Is there a battery in that phone? Give me that phone, I'll take out the battery, and you can have it back. You can text all you want. <laughs> that's like, I heard what you said, no electronics, but I reinterpreted it to mean this, but not this. Like I said, those kind of things never happen in my experience. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, that's, that's, that's life. And those are some of the things that we do to not listen very well, whether it's being distracted or the partial listener, uh, or the reinterpret what someone says in, you know, can fit with your own agenda, Um, and there's lots more than that. Now, I'm trying to be a little bit facetious here, but on the more serious side, the inability to stop, humble oneself, and listen to another individual, person, or more importantly, God himself, eats away at this thing we call relationship or community, Um, because at the middle of this thing called communication, a speaker and a listener is the word commune. Communication is just not just a, a corporate word. It means to commune through speech. And in truth, the way we're wired and the way the Bible's put together is God meant us to relate to one another through speaking and hearing. Speaking and hearing. And where one or both of those parts or the other is not functioning, communication breaks down and relationships are um, are, are, are hindered or hurt or damaged. Now, there's a reason why I talk about this and why I entered that way, and that is because when you come to this third story in in Samuel chapter 3, what we find is a massive communication breakdown between the Lord and his people. A massive communication breakdown between the Lord and his people. Uh, You'll notice, and this is the third complete story. I'm trying to take these as complete story units. The third story begins with this statement. Chapter 3, verse 1, the middle of verse 1, 1b, where it reads, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. That's telling us in the times in which Samuel lived and Eli, the high priest, and his sons, and Hannah, and probably going back into the time of the judges, there was rarely any word from the Lord. Back then, they didn't have their Bibles that they could pick up and read it. They depended upon God sending prophets or visions through prophets. Um, so here we're told that they live in a time in which there were hardly any words coming from the Lord. And the only words we read up until chapter 3 that the Lord does provide are, are stinging and haunting words of judgment on the house of Eli. So the only words that he is speaking are really, very, really tragic words. But this tells us that there was a famine. That, that's the setting for the story. There's a famine of the word of the Lord. The Lord is not speaking. Now, other portions of the Bible would give us the indication that the reason the Lord wasn't speaking was a sign of judgment. When the Lord stops speaking and stops communicating with its people, it's not because he doesn't want to, but he determines not to for a reason. And I think the reason, if I'm reading between the lines correctly, is because God's people stopped listening. That is as you back up into the period of the Judges or the book of Judges and read over and over again, the people did what was right in their own eyes. That is, they did whatever they wanted, regardless of what the Lord said. That's the background. That's the setting. And I think one of the reasons the Lord stopped speaking or spoke infrequently was because the people long ago stopped listening. So he stopped speaking. Now that is, uh, if you take the time to really think about it, our, our whole relationship with the Lord depends upon his speaking. And for the Lord to go silent and not to have words of the one who created us, made us, and the only one who can give us hope beyond death, it it would be a a darkness that I don't know um, that I could handle. You know, this is i I didn't do this the first service, I'll do it now. One of the dark nights of the soul of Miss Sheila um, was a time in which she could not recall the verses she had memorized to her mind shared that she was just, is down because she couldn't remember the word of God. And because of that, she felt lost. And that, that's, 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 that's where the people of God are when he's not speaking is they're lost. They're in a dark place. They're powerless. Um, Things are in chaos. The Lord is not speaking because they're not listening. Now, it's interesting to me that to think of a comparison between us and them. Now, they had a famine of God's word and, and we're exactly the opposite, Uh, Almost everybody, I assume, in here has a Bible. If you don't, you need to contact us. We'll get you one if you can't afford one. You need to have one of your own. Um, But if you're like me, I have one in my desk drawer. I have one in my nightstand. I have some on my shelves. Um, So do many of you. Then you have them on your iPads and your iPods and your iPhones and your Blackberries and your Androids and your tablets and not just one version, but like a 1,000 versions in English. And not just versions, but you have at your fingertips enormous amounts of, of commentary literature on what the Bible means. So we have printed Bibles. We have digital Bibles. If you, if you don't read all that well, you can get it on MP3 and listen to it, even online. If you don't understand the Bible, you can take a class on how to start, study the Bible, how to interpret the Bible online, offline You can go to Barnes and Noble and there's whole sections on how to understand your Bible or Christianity. As we live in a time, I think, of unprecedented access to the Word of the Lord. They were in a famine. We're in a feast. And yet, it seems as if, for some reason, this is my opinion and it's shared by others but I recognize not everybody may share it. There is a a lack of power in the Word today in God's people. And it's not because we don't have enough of it. There's plenty of food. So so where's the lack of power? And I'd be willing to guess, and I'm going to get to this in, in a moment, but perhaps it's not that there's a lack of word, but maybe a lack of listening. Or there's plenty of food, but maybe there's not enough of an appetite. They say, I I need the word of the Lord. Either case, whether there is a lack of word or a lack of listening, it ends really in the same place, a lack of power, a sense of confusion, and a a people of God that are basically in a place of darkness. Now, the Lord, to bring a change to that place, because he doesn't give up on his people. If one thing you learn from the Bible, he never ultimately rejects his people. He always has his way. And through the first several chapters, he's woven this really tiny but brilliant gold thread called Samuel. And this is the chapter where the Lord is going to call this man to be a prophet. And he is going to renew his word to this, pe- this people. Um, he's going to renew his word to his people. And here is the story of God's... Um, Basically renewing his, his, uh, his, his people who have lost the sense of listening. He's going to raise up for himself a, a prophet. And I think that there are things about what happened in his call that we can learn from. Let me read the, the, the story for you. Beginning verse 2. After, basically, it says that there was infrequent words and visions, Uh, the writer continues on and says, At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down. Again, it's like a parent telling his kid to go back to bed. So he went and laid down, and the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. And the story continues. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. That verse is very important, by the way. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again, the third time. And he rose and went to, the, went to Eli and said, here I am, for you call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. He, he was at least perceptive enough, Eli was, to, to know that perhaps this is the Lord after the third time. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and laid down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, or your servant hears. Now, kind of the, there's not a lot of action in this particular story. It's a lot of it's dialogue. Um, but what's intriguing about this is here you have Eli is sleeping in one place and Samuel is sleeping or laying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark is. Why they're sleeping in different places we don't know, but the proximity would suggest that Samuel had a heart for the Lord. Now, in the middle of the night, um, the, the, it says that the torch or the lamp was almost gone, so we're probably talking late, late night, everything's dark, and the lamp's about to go out, and here's Eli in the ancient church, of Eli, Samuel in the ancient church of the day, and all of a sudden, you know, it's normal sleeping time, you hear this voice, Samuel. Now, I put myself in there, that, his position, that would have freaked me out. You know, you're in a dark place. You ever been in a church at night? I like being in a church in the daytime. Churches at night are horror shows. I mean, at least that's how it feels. <laughs> I have been in this church, in my home church at night by myself, and I could, you know, swear I see shadows move and stuff. There's weird, you know, I I don't know. But uh, here he is, Samuel, is in the tent of the Lord, and all of a sudden he hears Samuel. He's like, ch, <laughs> But, you know, he had, he had the benefit of not growing up listening to Stephen King Movies or watching Stephen King movies. That's not what he thought. So he just, um, he he thinks what you naturally would think. Hey, someone's calling me. And so he runs to Eli. He does it three different times. Runs to Eli and and, um, Eli's like, it's not me. That would have been spooky too. (laughs) It's not you. It's not me. So who is it? Um, Now it's interesting, verse 7 I said is important. Because it gives an explanation as to why Samuel did not know who was calling his name. The reason he didn't know who was calling his name is because he did not yet know the Lord. He didn't have a relationship with him. He didn't know his voice. Now, you remember back in chapter 2, verse 11, the sons of Eli also did not know the Lord. And that statement had a sense of condemnation. This one does not. It's a, simply a statement of explanation. Saying the reason he couldn't hear him is God had not established a relationship with this um, man named Samuel. But what I also want you to notice in verse 7 is how the knowledge of the Lord or relationship is connected to God revealing through his word. Read that again. Now Samuel did not yet know, he had no relationship with the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. In order for there to be a relationship with the Lord, the Lord initiates by revealing himself. We do not discover God. God reveals himself to us. He takes the initiative in relationship. And he comes and he reveals himself to Samuel, but he reveals himself through his word and therefore establishing a relationship. What I want you to hold together in your mind, because I'm going to say something about it in a second, is that the word of the Lord and relationship, the word of the Lord revealed and relationship are joined. God establishes his relationship with his people through the revelation of his, of his word, okay? Now, so he, he, he comes three times. Finally, Eli says, hey, listen, go back to bed. And this time when he calls, go ahead and say, hey, speak for I hear. So that's exactly what he does. He went back to bed and lay in his place, and the Lord came. And look at this, verse 10, the Lord came and he stood. The other times it doesn't say that God's presence came close, this time, verse 10, this is the fourth time the Lord comes and he stands. His presence is close and he says it twice, Samuel. Samuel. Now other places in the Old Testament where God said Moses, Moses, or Abraham, Abraham, or significant events which kind of gives you the indication this is a significant event. So the presence of the Lord draws near to Samuel. And then speaks. And this encounter with the presence of God with the word will change his life dramatically and through him the flow of the nation. This single encounter with the presence of God revealing his word will change his life and change the flow of Israel's history. Now, that part about the presence of God Revealing itself through the word to a person is the part that intrigues me. We have, as I said, an abundance of the word of the Lord. The question is, if we have an abundance of the word of the Lord and we have Bible studies and people get up and do devotions, and I recognize some people are on the other side, they don't do any of that. Or listening to it on MP3 or listening to messages or sermons, whatever, however the word can come through, why is it that we can have so much and so little power? And I think, I think that part of the deficiency in our understanding is to recognize that we grow. And commune with the Lord not simply by understanding words on a printed page, but rather we grow and are changed and strengthened and find courage as we experience the presence of God with and in His Word. The presence of the Almighty with and in His Word. Now, let me, let me, you might be thinking, I okay, I need some help mentally with that. I I want you to get this because I don't think a lot of people do. I know it took a long time for me to get this, and I'm still getting it. So let me come at a different direction. There's a difference between what we might call objective revelation, God's revealed word, and subjective revelation. Objective, subjective objective revelation, or the objective word of God, is what we hold in our hands and we bring to church. Or you open Sunday morning and you flip through the pages and you read God's objective revelation. Now, what's cool about God's objective revelation is we have a certain amount of control, if I can use that word very loosely, over the study of it. Um. We can make decisions to get up in the morning and pour over. We can make decisions in the morning to memorize or in the afternoon or the evening or meditate upon or ponder. We can go on and get specialized training in how to do literary analysis. We can get training in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek so we can read it in the original. We can read systematic theologies, biblical theologies, all to understand this thing we call the objective revelation of God. And all those things are good. But all of those things we, in some measure, are in control of. And I'm thinking that in our, just call it an overly individualized control culture, that we think if we do this, somehow it equates to change, transformation, and strength. That just by doing these things and using our God-given aptitudes to break down the word, somehow that translates into power. Now, that's just the first part, and I want to say that's one-sided. A lot of people do that, and they find themselves empty. They leave, and they're like, I I, I did what I thought, but it doesn't doesn't do anything for me. Now, there's a reason for that, because there's a whole other side of revelation called subjective revelation, which we have no control over. And the subjective revelation is when the presence of God, we call him the Holy Spirit, takes the truth out here, objective, and makes it true in here. That we cannot do. That is a work of God's presence graciously coming upon the spirit of a man or woman like God's spirit came upon dark earth when, when there's uh, waters covered the face of the deep and the spirit speaking his word said, let there be light in the presence of God and the word together cause light to burst forth. That It's when God takes his word and his presence with and in it that we commune and that's when what's real here becomes real in here. And as I said, that part we are not in control of, and most of us aren't comfortable with that idea because it puts us in a place of complete, abject dependence on the Spirit of God for this to become real. We're not in control of it. We like to be in control. We like to be able to think, I did my job today. What if you did your job today and God didn't show up? Here we find Samuel The presence of God moved upon him and revealed the word and it changed his life. And I'm saying to us that there needs to be a presence of God with and in the word which is taking the objective truth of what we have here and bringing it subjectively into the reality of our own souls. Or maybe another way of thinking about it, don't push this analogy too far. All analogies break down if you push them too far. But think of copper, wire, and electricity. You know, something that connects the source of power to the need of power. And if you turn on the current, the current goes through the copper wire, and for for a moment there, while it's going through it, there's a sense in which both become one. But electricity and copper wires are not the same thing. You can have copper existing without electricity, and you have electricity existing without copper. They're they're two different things. But in that moment, when the power goes on and and the current surges through the copper, they become, for the most part, one. God has given us his word, his copper wire. And he's given us the responsibility of studying it and using our minds and praying over it and speaking it to each other and singing about it and and so forth. That's the copper wire. We must never think that simply studying the copper wire is going to change our lives. You can know everything there is about copper. But until the hand on the other side that has the switch sends his current through it, will the light... In the soul come on and remain on and grow and produce a sense of joy in the Lord because God has come into, through his word, his home, our hearts, producing that love and joy. But that's, that's up to him. That part, that current coming through is him. So that, 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 that raises a really important question. Okay, I have this. I want both. I want to experience the power of God's presence in, with, and through the word in my life, I want to commune with him in a very real powerful way. I want to see my life transformed through his strength. How do I get there? Now, there's no magical answer to that, but the Bible over and over again says this, that the, the one that the Lord reveres is the one who trembles at his word. That God gives grace to those who are humble. Humble. In other words, we don't come to the Bible as masters, but we come as as one to be mastered by it. And not until one has a posture of the heart of, Lord, these are your words. I, I understand the verbs and I understand the sentences, but until you turn on the juice, I can't really meet with you. And I believe when we, we in our, are in that posture before the L- Lord's word and we're saying, I, I claim my incapacity for your word to become life in me. And I'm willing to humbly listen. I want to listen to your word on your terms. I don't want to come with um, listening disorder number three of saying, well, that can't mean what it means. Rather, than saying, Lord, I I want to accept the word for me as you have stated it. I'm not going to argue with it. I'm not going to justify it. And I'm not going to kill it with a thousand qualifications. And I really believe if God's people humble themselves before his word with a listening ear saying, speak to me, that the juice will flow. And we will encounter the living God through the word. If there's a reason that there is so much lack of powers because we have come to God's objective revelation without the need and the humble dependence on the Lord to speak through it and meet with us in it, which we can't control, which means you got to beg, knock, seek, ask, and say, Lord, please. And the Bible promises over and over, those who humble themselves, God gives grace to. And when that is our heart before the word of God, I think he, he turns on the juice, He meets with us. He changes us. He convinces us of his love. We don't just know it. We are convinced of it because he's turned on the lights. So the, the simple point at this point is what transformed this man's life was a living encounter with the presence of God in the word. And that's what we need. We don't just need objective. We need a humble heart of faith that God will take the objective and bring it into the subjective of our souls. It changes life, changes families, changes a community. That's kind of the part of the word that I think many are missing. And it takes a humble attitude of listening. Sometimes it's not going to happen in a half hour, an hour, a week, or a month. But the Lord says, those who wait upon me, you know, will rise up in strength. He will meet with us if we seek him in humility and listen and ask him. But that's, that's one of the reflections on this interaction between Samuel and God, and his word and presence, right there. You know, you think back in the Bible, that's, 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 that's a carryover. God, God's presence moved in on the dark planet and said, let there be light. Or when God's presence moved past Moses in Exodus 34 in the darkness, and he saw his presence, but then he heard the words of the Lord, they're meant to go together when God spoke and it became flesh and dwelt among us. God's word and presence were meant to go together and where they are separated. And you know, all we have is printed words without a dependence upon the spirit of God to ignite that and light a match to his truth. Well, then we're left with a dead conduit, copper, without electricity. Well, this man got it and it changed his life. And he, was, he had a relationship with the Lord and then he was given his first task, which was in many respects one of the most... Um, I don't want to say it's unfair because God is never unfair. But the word of the Lord that's revealed to, to Samuel, his first message. Imagine being asked to give this message to your mentor supervisor. The Lord says to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. He rebuked them, but he didn't restrain them, if you remember back to the second story. Then verse 14, therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Forever. That's his first prophetic gig. The Lord establishes a relationship and he says to him, You need to go tell your mentor supervisor, Eli, the most powerful man in Israel, one who is called a judge in 1 Samuel chapter 4. You need to tell him that his house is doomed. Tell him that I have sworn that there is no atonement forever. That's a tough message. I mean, the, the text gives us indications that they were more than acquaintances. Eli calls him my son. So now this young man has the important duty of bearing now this word, which is a very negative. No, there's really nothing worse than there is no atonement forever. And you've got to take it to the one that who's has been your teacher for who knows how long. That's a tremendous responsibility. That teaches us something. When we receive the word of God and, and we experience it authentically, objectively and subjectively, it comes with a tremendous responsibility of then bearing it in its integrity. And you'll notice that, um, did I skip something? I think I did. Oh, the story goes on. He's he's told this really nasty um, word of judgment. And then verse 15 says, Samuel lay until morning. The idea, he laid there awake. Like, what the heck am I going to do? Then he opened the doors to the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell his vision to Eli, as would I. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel, his first test, first challenge as a prophet, he can't commit the second act, third act of listening disorder, of reinterpreting what the Lord said to make it a little bit nicer for Eli. He has a responsibility of bearing the message as it is. And it says there, so Samuel told him everything. Everything. And he hid nothing from him. And he said, that is Eli. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. If I was Eli, I'd be prostrate on the ground begging for mercy. But he accepts the fate of no atonement, no redemption, no forgiveness. But I want you to notice that he has faithfully done his job as the word bearer. Word bearer. A tremendous responsibility, church, comes with being called Christians. Not only to be humble listeners and recipients of God's word daily, but to be faithful carriers and bearers of his word to one another and to those outside. And we do not have the freedom to change it. We need to be discreet, discerning, sensitive to the context, the occasion. But we do not have the freedom to change the message that we've been given. Now, I know we're not prophets like Samuel. That was for him and for his time. But we are bearers of the word of the prophet who has given us the final message of the Lord. And that message is is Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he has committed to us and entrusted us not only to be authentic recipients who commune with him through his word personally and powerfully, but then to bear it in all of its integrity, lovingly, To those in our families, those in our church, and those outside the church and to not change it. That's what a prophet does. That's what uh, one who witnesses to the resurrection and death of Jesus does. Doesn't change it to acquiesce to the pressures of culture. That too is an important message for our time. To be faithful bearers of the word of God. And I think it's interesting, and I just say this in closing, that 1 Samuel 1, 2, and 3. Near the end of all three stories, we find three powerful threads of Old Testament truth. The end of the first story, chapter 2, verse 10, tells us of a a coming eternal king. Chapter 2, verse 35, promises a coming faithful eternal priest. And chapter 3 introduces us to the prophet of God. King, priest, priest. And prophet, three strands, which in the New Testament God would braid together into one, who is Jesus, the King, the Priest, and the Prophet, the final word of God. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, what's what well, I believe we need. I need. We need to continually um, pour ourselves out to is a renewal of God's word in His people, and kind of do away with the thin, crusty. Um, lack of humility, lack of trust that God's present in his word and experience him again in his holy word and watch the the fire go. You know how that story ends here? It ends in the opposite of where it begins. And I'm not going to read this whole text. I'm just going to say, chapter 3, verse 1, the story began with, in those days, the word of God is rare. And at the end of the story, chapter 4, verse 1, It says, and the word of Samuel, that's the word of the Lord, came to all Israel. Starts with a famine and ends with a feast because God connected with a single man through his word. Imagine if God connected to a church in this way. Let's pray for that. Lord, I ask that you would grant us uh, just a humble heart and I pray that those who have um, a sense of this is all there is, that you would blow those doors off of that and you would grant us a sense that there is so much more of your presence and your power in the word of God that we have not yet experienced Um, and that we would come um, trembling with delight at the idea or at the possibility that we can commune with your presence in power and to know that you are there and to know your love and to know your joy and to know your hope because you do communicate yourself with and in the word. But give us listening ears, humble hearts, to be able to receive what you have spoken. And then may we have the courage to bring it to those on the outside um, and to those in our church family and our own families um, with integrity who need to hear it. So, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, make it so. In Christ's name, amen.